Uh, my name is Darren. Good morning, church. How are you today? Nice to see you. I'm one of the shepherds on staff and happy to be with you. I'm going to invite our, uh, our offering team to come forward, the ushers, and we're going to, uh, to give our offering at this point. As they come, I will tell you, I just spent the last week at Hume Lake. I was teaching for student camps up there. It was a high school, junior high combo camp. Got the opportunity to walk through what it means to be a follower of Jesus with them. But one of the unique privileges of this particular week at Hume, I got the opportunity to serve with our uh, musicians from Evie Free. So they came with me. So our chief musician, Christina, uh, John Tibet. Ben Sloeb, Garrett Hazen, like this, this crew was up there with me. And it was so fun. I think sometimes we, right here, we sort of take for granted how blessed we are that God has provided these incredible people. By the way, uh, offering team, you're, you're welcome to begin taking the offering. But they, um, it was so fun for me to kind of step back and see this uh, Ponderosa Chapel at Hume Lake filled with high school students and junior high students worshiping God, praising Him, and then recognizing it's like, this is our crew. It felt like kind of like a family week. I felt very proud and, and not proud proud of those individuals, but proud that God is using us, that God is using our church, not only right here in our own neighborhood, but in other places. And it was a great privilege. And it, and it served as a reminder to me of just how incredible God has been to our church over the years. He's, he's raised up great leaders, not only our, our uh, paid staff, but also there's so many people that are serving in our children's ministry, people that are serving in the coffee shop, in the library, people serving in the parking garage right here, people right now serving us by, um, by passing the offering. And, and we have so much to be grateful for. God has uh, blessed us in huge ways. And it was just a, sort of a great reminder being away with them and thinking like, I feel pretty excited to be part of this family at this time in this place. So just know that uh, you were well represented this last week by, uh, by some of your leaders up at Hume. And, and uh, they had a, a profound impact on the lives of students kind of from all over California and the West Coast. So it was fun. Now this morning as we dive into our teaching, I want to let you know, uh, if you're a regular around here, part of the family, we're going to press pause on our John series, Love and Trouble, for about five weeks, including today. We'll jump back into John uh, at the end of September, and then we'll basically stay in John until about Christmas time when we'll finish that series. But this morning we're beginning a five-week series that's a bit of a scouting report. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Numbers chapter 13. And uh, as I say it's a scouting report, you're probably like, I don't know exactly what that means, but... um, some of you, I mean, I'm guessing probably most of you not seen my job description. If you want to see my job description, it's available. We could show it to you. But one of the fun things about my calling in this place, what God has called me to do and to be in our particular church, uh, one of the fun parts of my job is working in conjunction with our elders um, to, to sort of pay attention to who God is and what he's calling us to in the future. We have 10 elders at this church. I'm one of them. And we regularly meet, not, not just to sort of discuss the things that are happening in our church today, but really to pray and seek God about where he will take us in the future. It is the responsibility of the elders to cast vision for tomorrow, to, to set our mission statement, to make sure that our objectives are right, to make sure that we're not just paying attention to what we do practically, but why we're doing it and how we're doing it. And so this morning I'm bringing you... Uh, uh, the beginning of a five-week series, this, this morning's like an overview, and then we'll kind of walk through it in more detail over the next four weeks. But in essence, it's a scouting report from the elders. I'm their ambassador. A scouting report from the elders about where we believe that God is taking our family, this church, in the days ahead. And I turn you to Numbers 13 because there's a scouting report in Numbers 13 too. It'll serve as a great sort of a, a, a great text for us to kind of think about what it means to lean into the future. In Numbers chapter 13, we see the people of God, the people of Israel, are standing on the precipice of the fulfillment of God's promise, literally. They're standing on the shore of the Jordan River. 
And on the other side of the Jordan River is the promised land, Canaan, right? And they have traveled, and now they're looking and they're seeing the promised land with their own eyes for the first time, and they're standing on the, the precipice of what will be the fulfillment of generations of people's hopes in the promises of God. You see, God had said to Abraham, their great, 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 great grandfather, I'm going to give you this land, and you're going to be my people, and you're going to occupy it. He'd reaffirmed that promise to Abraham's son Isaac. He'd reaffirmed that promise to Isaac's son Jacob. And in fact, when he reaffirmed it to Jacob, he said, I'm going to give you Canaan, I'm going to give you the promised land, but you can't go up and take it yet because the time isn't right. And in fact, between now and when the time will be right, your people are going to go to Egypt, and they're going to kind of be stuck there. The people go to Egypt, and they're enslaved there for generations under the rule of Pharaoh. And as we saw when we studied Exodus together, God, through his servant Moses, leads the people out of Egypt, right? He leads them out supernaturally by his power. They follow his map. They follow the course that he lays out. And as a result, they end up eventually on the shore of the Jordan River looking at the land that their great-grandparents and their great-great-grandparents and their great-great-great-grandparents only dreamed of occupying. They themselves probably have to feel like they're living in a fairy tale or a storybook deal. Like, we're going to be the ones that get to do the thing that grandma and grandpa dreamed of, right? Because there were generations who were born hoping and trusting in the promises of God, but they died in slavery, never actually being able to be the ones to see that promise fulfilled. Now, these people are standing there. And so as they stand there and they're about to enter the promised land, God comes to Moses in Numbers 13 and he says, I want you to, I want you to choose 12 scouts. And I want those scouts to be the leaders of each tribe. Each one a chief, right? Pick one from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And I want you to send them into the promised land. Send them into Canaan to scout it out. To see where the, where the hills and the valleys are. To figure out where the people are. Where the cities are. How it's fortified. All of that stuff. Go in and take it out. I'm giving you this land. So go in and just sort of scout it. And see what it's like. Do a survey. So Moses does exactly that. He picks one leader from each of the 12 tribes and he gives them the call of God. He says, God wants you to go in and just see what the land looks like. These leaders go into the promised land for 40 days while the rest of the people of Israel wait. And when they return, they give their scouting report. They give their scouting report. We're going to pick it up there. Numbers chapter 13, starting in verse 25. In Numbers 13, 25, it says this. At the end of 40 days... They returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Right? So God had promised that this land would be incredibly fruitful. If you read earlier in Numbers 13, it says the fruit is actually so plentiful that it's too heavy for them to carry by themselves. They actually put it on a pole between two grown men and they carry the fruit from the valley of Eskel. So these spies come back. Here's the congregation of Israel and Moses. Uh, at this time, there are over a million, over a million people at this point in, in the people of Israel. And it says they come back and they go, hey, the land is exactly what God told us it would be. And here is some of its fruit. It's exactly what he said. Here's its fruit. You can almost imagine the roar of the crowd. <sighs> you know, people cheering. We can't believe we're living this moment. So cool. But that isn't where their report stops. Their scouting report goes on. And in fact, if you're the kind of person who takes notes in your Bible or whatever, I'd love for you to circle uh, in verse 28 the first word, however. Circle that word, however, and put like a, like a sad face next to it or like a thumbs down, right? I don't know how you note that. They go, hey, the land is exactly what God said it would be. Here is some of its fruit. However, eh, 
here's what they say next, 28. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. Besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the Jordan. They say it is exactly what God said it would be. In fact, here's some of the fruit God promised us. But the people are strong and they're big and they live in fortified cities. And they're everywhere. We can't do it. You can kind of hear the way this, this message is starting to go. Now I imagine, one of these spies, by the way, is a guy named Caleb. Caleb you may have heard of before. Caleb's been on this scouting trip with these other 11 guys. He knows the way this report's going to go, right? You can imagine they've had talks on the trail where they're like, what are we going to say when we get back? He knows that this, that this report is about to go south. And so Caleb does everything he can. He actually interjects here in Numbers 13, verse 30. He interjects, and it, and it says this, Caleb quieted the people before Moses. I don't even know how you quiet a million people without a microphone, but somehow he did it, right? Caleb goes, shut up, shut up, shut up, everybody. He says, let us go up and occupy it at once, for we can certainly do it, right? What's he trying to do? He's trying to change the nature of the conversation. He's trying to change the tone of it. The spies are going, hey, you know what? It is fruitful. It is what God said it would be, but we can't do it. The people are tough. They're tall. They're big. They're everywhere. They're in fortified cities. It's not looking good for us. Caleb goes, no, 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 no. Get your backpacks, put away your tents, get all your stuff, we're going. Let's go take the land, right? And the spies just kind of roll over him. The other 11 spies kind of roll over him. It says in verse 30, he says, let us go up at once and occupy it for we are well able to overcome it. Verse 31, the men who had gone with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of a great height. There we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. These other 11 spies go, we can't do it. The people are huge. In fact, when they look at us, we look like grasshoppers to them. And to be honest with you, when we look at them, we kind of look like grasshoppers to ourselves, right? They're not wrong. We seem tiny, and we are tiny. That's why. And so the result, see in Numbers 14, then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land? To fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. These scouts come back and they give a scouting report to the people and they say, hey, we saw the land is exactly what God said it would be, but we can't go there. They're tough, they're well fortified, they're everywhere, they're tall. We feel like grasshoppers and they also agree that we are grasshoppers. And the way the people didn't respond is through sorrow and weeping and crying. They start to grumble against Moses. They start to question God. They start to fight with each other. They reject their leadership, right? And they go, and they actually go so far as to say, we want to go back to the safety and security of being enslaved to the Pharaoh. We'd actually rather go back. It would be safer and more secure for us to be enslaved to the world than to be free under God. It's interesting, when we start thinking about the future, I told you at the beginning I'm here to sort of give you a scouting report for where I think God's going to take our family, where the elders think we're going to go in the next 10 or 20 years. 
And it's interesting as we look at the climate of the world and the climate of the church, I see so many Christians in our world today responding like the people of Israel. I don't know whether you've read any recent Christian books or you've heard recent Christian reports, but there are a ton of people out there that are going, oh, it's not looking good for the church. Numbers are in decline. The whole world has rejected Jesus. Look at Europe. It's post-Christian. Like, you know, we need to batten down the hatches. We got to hunker down. And we feel all these people sort of, you know, tearing their clothes and prophesying doomsday for the church, prophesying doomsday for the kingdom of God, saying, woe is us. This used to be a Christian nation and now it's falling apart and what's going to happen? The churches are all going to close. And what? Can I tell you something? We live in an environment where people are doing this very same thing. Whereas they look to the future, they're forgetting that God has made us some promises. That God has the power and God is victorious to do exactly what he said he will do. So it's very interesting in Numbers 14, in the midst of all the weeping and the moaning and the grumbling and the fighting and the dissension and the rebellion and the desire for people to go back to be enslaved to the world, that Joshua and Caleb in Numbers 14 step up and they deliver another speech. In their speech, by the way, there's sort of another message. I don't have time to teach it today, but I'm very interested in how it goes from being 1 and 11 in Numbers 13, Caleb versus 11 other spies, to the Numbers 14 numbers where it's Joshua and Caleb. Somewhere between Numbers 13 and 14, Joshua kind of steps up, which I sort of like. We'll talk about it another day. But in Numbers 14, we see Joshua and Caleb speak up to the congregation. And I want us to listen to what they say, because what they say is rooted in our forecast, our vision, for what God is going to do in our community in the days ahead. Here's what, here's what Joshua and Caleb say in Numbers chapter 14. It says in verse 6, Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh who were among those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes and they said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. There are four key things I want you to see in Joshua and Caleb's speech. Four key things that are part of our forecast for the future. They're sort of core things. In, our, in a few minutes, I'm going to show you basically what are four pillars, right? And the four pillars of our scouting report for the future of this particular family, they, each pillar has sort of an internal piece and an external piece. We see in Joshua and Caleb's speech all of these internal pieces, the things that, that have to be happening in us for the external things to take place. The first one I want you to see in Joshua and Caleb's speech is this. If you're taking notes, you could write this down. It's confident expectation. Confident expectation. Joshua and Caleb look at the other spies and by extension the congregation and they go, wait, wait, wait. God is the one who will do this. God is the one who promised it to us. God is the one who has all the power. So what are we worried? Let's go up and occupy it at once. There is a confident expectation in the power and promise of God. Not only that, in this speech, we also see the second thing that's an internal thing for us as well. It's humble solidarity. I love the fact that Joshua and Caleb don't like distance themselves from the crew, right? I, I, uh, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where like somebody starts to tell a joke that's like a little blasphemous or maybe somebody starts to lean towards like some heresy and you kind of like step away from them so the lightning doesn't strike you, you know what I'm talking about? I think it's very interesting in this text that Joshua and Caleb don't go, wow, there are these 10 other chiefs of Israel who are abandoning God and his promises, 
who are living lives of fear and cowardice and rebellion and whatever. Joshua and Caleb don't go, hey, let's go over here and start our own little thing, right? They don't go, hey, we're going to get away from all of these rebels. And instead, hey, God, it's me, Joshua, and Caleb, and uh, we'd like to sort of have a little side deal with you if that's possible because we're faithful and we're good and we actually are seeing this thing right. No, no, no. What Joshua and Caleb say in Numbers 14 is if the Lord is with us, he will deliver us. If the Lord is with us, what do we still see? We see this humble solidarity where even though Caleb and Joshua have their head on straight at the time, they recognize that they are part of this group of people who's rebelling. They have this humble solidarity with even those who are rebelling. The third thing I want you to see in Joshua and Caleb's report, they say, do not rebel, right? To come back to the text, it says in verse eight, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey, verse nine, only do not rebel against the Lord. What is it they're saying? They're saying you have to live what you actually believe. The third pillar I'd want you to see, the first concrete sort of grounding pillar is demonstrable faith. Demonstrable faith. Joshua and Caleb are looking at the people and they go, it's one thing to say, oh, we believe that God will do this. It's one thing to sit around the campfire and say, God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would give us this land. But now that we're standing on the edge of the Jordan River and the promised land is there, it's not enough to just say we believe those things. It's not, a just, not enough to just repeat the story to one another. We actually have to move. We got to pack up our packs and tear down our tents and get across this river and take the land that God has called us to because that is an active workout of what we claim to believe. He's calling them, don't rebel. Demonstrable faith, right? He calls them to confident, right? Confident expectation. He calls them to humble solidarity or he demonstrates that. Demonstrable faith is third. And fourthly, and this is a little bit weird, he, he calls them to unblushing oddity. And here's what I mean by that. Unblushing oddity is the fourth one. And the idea here is that we don't see in any place Caleb go, oh, you know what? Like, it is kind of it is kind of sad that we look like grasshoppers, but we're not grasshoppers. No, we're not. We're mighty fighting men. Yes, you are. Come here, everybody. I heard you say you look like grasshoppers. That's not true. You don't seem like grasshoppers to me. Buck up, little camper. You know, let's look into the mirror and repeat after one another. Like I'm good enough and I'm smart enough and doggone it, I can take the promised land. You know. Caleb doesn't look at them and say, you don't look like grasshoppers. He doesn't talk about that statement at all. You know what he says? It doesn't matter what we look like. It matters who we're with. The reality is that grasshoppers, the reality is these people do look like grasshoppers. They're not wrong. They look like grasshoppers to their enemies and to themselves. What Caleb is saying is that's irrelevant because grasshoppers plus a sovereign king of the universe kind of God means victory, right? grasshoppers plus God, who cares about grasshoppers? And so the last thing here is he leans into the unblushing oddity of their position, right? He leans into the unblushing oddity. There's four things. I want to go back and look at them in turn so that you'll see not not just the internal piece for each of us, but the way that works out in our community. The first one we see here is confident expectation, You see, we do live in a world where Christians are running for the hills, where Christians are are clanging the death toll of discipleship. And I will tell you, they have forgotten what Jesus says. Let me read you something from Revelation chapter 21. The reality is that for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we know how the story ends. That story has already been written. And so when we talk about confident expectation, check this out, Revelation 21.1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Why does he tell John the Revelator to write it down? Because he doesn't want us to forget. Why doesn't he want us to forget? So that we can live a life of confident expectation in the fulfillment of God's promises. The story is written. I mean, think about the, the, the thing Jesus says in Matthew 16. We, everybody gets so worried about the church. In Matthew 16, 18, in the context of Jesus talking with his disciples and saying, uh, who do people say that I am? And the disciples go, oh, some people think you're a prophet. Some people think you're Elijah. Peter goes, I say that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And in Matthew 16, in response to that declaration by Peter, Jesus says this in verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for the flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Do you have a question this morning about whether or not the church will survive the culture of 2019? Look at it again. Jesus says it will not be conquered, that the church will triumph. And that confident expectation does something to us. You see, when I am confident in the promises of God, when I am confidence in, have confidence in the future that he has already written and secured in his victorious death and resurrection, it changes who I am. Because that confident, that confident expectation, what it pulls out of me or what it produces is a radiant peace. Radiant peace, that's the first pillar. As I give you our scouting report this morning, radiant peace rooted in confident expectation. You see, because as I become confident in the power of God and in his promises, then I don't have to be anxious. I don't have to be troubled. I don't have to be worried about what's happening in the world and what's going on. I can rest. And when I say peace, I don't mean peace like the cessation of fighting. I mean shalom, total wholeness and wellness in the power of God. And it isn't just that I have peace because of my confidence in, in, in what God has said, but it's a peace that then radiates out of me into the lives of other people. I mean, turn on the news. We live in a world where people are desperate for peace. They're desperate for shalom. They're worried about climate change. They're worried about politics. They're worried about guns. They're worried about everything. There's so much to worry about. Unless you trust that God is in control and that he has a purpose and a plan. What does our world need? They don't need more anxiety. What they need is radiant peace. How do they get it? It radiates out of God's people when God's people put their faith in the promises and purposes of God. Radiant peace rooted in confident expectation. Our community starts to look different when there's radiant peace. In fact, we become essentially like an embassy of the future. I don't know if you know, uh, 2 Corinthians 5 talks about the fact that all of us have been called to be ambassadors, right? That we are appointed to be ambassadors of the message of reconciliation. That we get to go into the world and tell them, you don't have to pay the penalty for your sin. God is reconciling man to himself through the sacrifice of Christ. That's, that's who we are as ambassadors. Where do ambassadors hang? Ambassadors work out of a very uh, singular place. They work out of embassies. And an embassy is a sovereign place on foreign soil, right? A sovereign place on foreign soil where people can come, and even though it might be the Polish embassy in the United States, they walk in and they're on Polish territory, right? The church, and I don't just mean our buildings, but I do mean our buildings and our property also, our community 
It's meant when people come into contact with us, when they come to our services, when they walk through our doors, it's meant to give them a glimpse of a different kingdom. It's meant to portray for them and put on display the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus praised that in the Sermon on the Mount. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We have the opportunity to give people a taste of what the future will be like. We read about it a second ago, Revelation 21. No crying, no tears, no suffering. Jesus on the throne, having reconciled men to himself. Our community and our property and our programs and our worship become an embassy of the future. Uh, I don't know if you know, like when Walt Disney uh, created Epcot Center, that was, that was his idea. He wasn't thinking of it to be a, a, a theme park. In fact, Epcot means experimental prototype city of the future. And his idea was not to create a place where there'd be rides and whatever, but literally to create a neighborhood where all of the future technology would be on display. The church is essentially, not experimental, but the church is essentially a prototype community of tomorrow. Jesus is coming back, and when he does, he will set everything right. He will make everything new. And our neighbors and friends and coworkers and family, when they come in contact with our community, this confident expectation will produce in us a radiant peace, and it will give our friends and family a taste of what tomorrow is like. Radiant peace rooted in confident expectation. That's the first one. The second one as we keep going. I, sorry, I get, I get excited, so I keep, you know, trucking. The second one we talked about is this humble solidarity. We see that Caleb and Joshua are connected to their fellow man, even though their fellow man is being unfaithful. I think humble solidarity is a key for each and every one of us as we go into the future. That's one of those internal things we have to get our minds around. And what I mean by that is this. Each and every one of us are sinners saved by grace. Each and every one of us were broken until by his grace, Jesus rescued us from sin and death. But sometimes, for Christians, what happens is we start to get a little puffed up. We start to get a little arrogant. You know, you read a passage like 1 Peter 2 where it says you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his special possession, a chosen people. And you start to go, yeah, it's true, that's who I am. I'm a holy nation. It's right, I'm royal priesthood. And I look out my windows and I see all these sinners out there and they're bad, right? I look at all the immorality and I look at all the greed and all the selfishness, but I'm a royal priesthood, you know? And what happens is the church becomes incredibly judgy. And it's because we're reveling in who we are, but who we are has nothing to do with our work. It's not that any of us became a royal priesthood through our efforts. And sometimes what happens is we forget where we came from. Let me remind you, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Colossians chapter 2 verse 13 says this, you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive. God did that. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You and I can never forget that the brokenness we see in the world is the very same brokenness that exists apart, uh, inside of us. And there but for the grace of God would we still be. And what that does when we have this humble solidarity with our fellow man and woman what this does when we look at the world and we see the brokenness that we ourselves were in. First Peter 2 also says that he's rescued us from those things that we would declare the excellencies of him who took us out of the darkness and into the light. We're not supposed to ignore the first part of that story. We're not just supposed to declare the fact that we're in the light. We're supposed to constantly be in recognition of the fact that that's not where we would be if not for Jesus. When we have that humble solidarity with our fellow man, here's what's produced. A revolutionary kindness. That's the second pillar revolutionary kindness 
Not because we're trying to be nice to other people. I hear some Christians sometimes who are like, well, I love others because God loves them, so I feel like I probably should too. That's not a good reason to love other people. Let me tell you why you should love other people. Because they're just like you. They are us. And they need the grace of God. Revolutionary kindness that's rooted in humble solidarity. Right? Yeah, there's a place in 1 Peter 1. In 1 Peter 1 it says, uh, it says that, 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 we will, uh, that trials come into our life so that the tested genuineness of our faith will result in praise and glory of God when he returns. Right? That tested genuineness of our faith, but that's not, a t- that's not God giving a test. That's, that's not, the results are not for him. I don't know if you know this. Maybe you do. But God is omniscient, which means he knows everything. There's never a place in the Bible where God is trying to find something out. There's never a time that God asks a question in the Bible that he doesn't already know the answer to. So anytime you see him in a dialogue with human beings, when he asks a question, he's always asking so that they will know the answer. Anytime we see a passage, in, like in the one in First Peter that says, we go into trials so that the tested genuineness of our faith will be on display, that tested genuineness is not for God. It's not him going, hey, there's trials happening so that I can see if Darren really means it. So I can see if the songs he sings on Sunday morning are really coming from his heart or not. No, look, God knows my heart, right? He doesn't need to give me any test. That tested genuineness of my faith is for me and for the people around me. My neighbors, my coworkers, the people I interact with on the soccer team or whatever else. Abraham doesn't go onto the top of the mountain to sacrifice his son Isaac so that God will learn something about Abraham. Abraham goes to the top of the mountain to sacrifice his son Isaac so that Abraham will learn about God, Right? So there's this humble solidarity that produces in us this revolutionary kindness, this generosity. We've got all kinds. I mean, I have, by the way, there's all kinds of action items here, both with radiant peace and with revolutionary kindness. We, we've, we've been kicking around the idea of developing our own curriculum for kids and adults that, that would root us in the promises of God for that confident expectation. We've been talking about, um, about hiring a videographer at our church that would be able to take video of the stories of what God has done so that we will remember both both who we were and who we are. We've been talking about these Think Well. uh, We got these Think Well lectures that we do on Sunday nights. In fact, we have one tonight. And Think Well exists as a way to invite our community in to have a conversation about how you can have radiant peace in the midst of the drama of our world. The Think Well tonight is all about how to disagree well, right? How does God say we disagree with one another? We've got all kinds of action items. We've talked about, you know, when we talk about revolutionary kindness, think about our 50,000 days of Christmas that we just did in November. We're thinking about and sort of dreaming about the idea of revolutionizing our ministry to divorced people and widows, those who are in the midst of brokenness and sorrow and grief and pain, and figuring out how do we identify how to love them well and to bring kindness into their life, not rooted in pity, but kindness into their life rooted in the fact that we also are broken and hurting and suffering. We're talking about trying to establish a, uh, a tragedy response team that would read the newspaper of all things and figure out who's suffering in our city and just try and get up next to them and love them well. Revolutionary kindness rooted in humble solidarity. Radiant peace rooted in confident expectation. We got two more. I got to keep going. The next one was demonstrable faith. You remember that? Demonstrable faith. Joshua and Caleb look at the people and they say, do not rebel. Let what you say you believe work itself out in your actual steps, in your actions. Let's go. We can occupy it. Don't rebel. Demonstrable faith is key for us, that we're actually living what we say we believe. I, I think you know this already, 
But God is far less interested in your ability to, to articulate theological premises or your ability to win at Bible trivia or your ability to recite long sections of C.S. Lewis or whatever. God cares far less than what's in your head than what's in your heart because what's in your heart produces action. It's why when Jesus in John 1, which we studied a long time ago, when Jesus calls his first disciples, he doesn't say, what do you know? Or where do you go to church? Or can you answer my Bible questions before you can be my followers? He says to them, what are you seeking? Or what are you hungry for? Jesus wants to capture our hearts because he knows if he captures our hearts, our deeds will be transformed. Some of you probably are familiar with the teaching in James. Although if you're a guest today or you're not familiar with the Bible, you might not be. James is very clear about the fact that we can't just be hearing God's word, but that when we hear it, it should translate into action in us. James 1 verse 22 says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James chapter 2 verse 18 says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works, and I, James says, I will show you my faith by my works. Faith that's worked out. You know, uh, demonstrable faith becomes the platform on which we can have a prophetic voice. That's the third pillar. Prophetic engagement rooted in demonstrable faith. I see a lot of Christians in the world who want to be able to shout things at people. You know what I'm saying? When we think about a prophetic engagement, we think about a prophetic voice, we often think about somebody who foretells the future or whatever. That's not the way the Bible talks about prophets. The prophets in the Bible were truth tellers. They were people who declared the truth. They were the people who declared the truth in the face of falsehood. They were people who declared light in the midst of the darkness. You think about Elijah and you think about Moses and you think about Isaiah and Jeremiah. Prophetic voice. We also have been called to have a prophetic voice. The problem is that for many of us, we want to be able to look at our neighbors, we want to be able to look at the world and go, hey, you know what? You shouldn't be sleeping around. You shouldn't be doing those drugs and you shouldn't be embezzling money from your company. And, you shouldn't. and the world looks at us and goes, uh, I don't want to burst your bubble here, but I'm not going to listen to a word you say because you do all those things. You're sleeping around. You're cheating on your wives. You're stealing money. You're prideful. You're arrogant. You're hateful. So all of our prophetic voice that we're trying to have is completely undermined by the fact that we are not living what we say we believe. And our prophetic voice becomes wasted. But look at what happens. Think about Daniel for a second. Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel has a profound impact, a prophetic engagement in Babylon, in Persia, in the lives of Nebuchadnezzar the king, in the lives of Darius and Cyrus. Daniel, this refugee, has a profound impact. Not because he got up on a table and looked at Nebuchadnezzar and was like, dude, you're a bad man who tore away you know, us from Israel and you stole all the things from the temple and God's going to burn you, Right? Daniel never gives that speech. You know what Daniel does? Daniel lives a faithful life. Daniel just lives a faithful life in exile. He's just obedient to God's commands. And along the way, you know what happens? Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, Cyrus, each one, these kings, they look at Daniel and his friends and they go, there's something, something different about those guys. You know, their food plan is actually better than our food plan. The food plan that God gave them is actually better than, the, we're gonna adopt their food plan. And what happens? Babylon you know, Persia, these places are affected not because Daniel pointed his finger in anybody's face, but because Daniel lived a life of demonstrable faith, 
Daniel lived a faithful life that other people could see. And so when he stepped up and said, I don't think living in sexual immorality is the best thing for you. I don't think that's what God created gender for. I don't think that's what God created marriage for. People will listen to our prophetic voice if our lives back up what we say we believe. So it's prophetic engagement, speaking truth into our world, declaring the truth to our world, but not doing it with a pointed finger, but rather with a, with a faithful life, demonstrable faith that produces prophetic engagement. And the last thing I want you to see, and this is kind of tied to those, we talked, this is my favorite one, unblushing oddity, right? The fourth pillar, unblushing oddity. We talked already about the fact that, that Joshua and Caleb don't argue with the fact that, uh, that they look like grasshoppers. There is no point where Joshua and Caleb go, you guys are being too hard on yourself. You're not grasshoppers. You're powerful. I'd say you're probably more like, you know, more like a crocodile or whatever. He doesn't try and encourage them. He just owns the fact that they're grasshoppers, that they're small. I think that we as Christians have made a mistake along the way somewhere, and here's, here's the mistake. I think we've made a mistake in tr- trying to sort of polish out all of the weirdness of following Jesus. I think we've, we've tried to sort of wash away or whitewash all of the things that are countercultural about believing in Jesus or believing that the Bible is the inspired word of God. I think we've tried to kind of downplay the miraculous. I think we've tried to sort of ignore the things that are supernatural. I think we've got, been kind of embarrassed about the mystical in the scriptures. And we're not doing anybody any favors. What we're trying to do in that is we're trying to make the rest of the world comfortable. We're trying to make it so that when they come to our church, it doesn't feel weird. It just feels like they're at a rock concert, Right? And they come in here and they're like, yeah, this feels like, you know, whatever. It feels like a rock concert. They meet us. They come into our homes and they're like, yeah, this just feels like hanging out with anybody else. And when we do that, we've done them a disservice and we've done ourselves a disservice because what they need is not to feel comfortable, right? If they, like when, when they come into our churches and it just feels like going to any other thing, like why would they come here? Why wouldn't they just go see Paul McCartney at Dodger Stadium? That's a better show. If all we're doing in here is putting on a show, we're wasting our time. And in those places where we've sort of walked away from the mystical or we've walked away from the supernatural, we've walked away from the countercultural, we're missing out on the fact that that's actually what the world needs. What the world needs is us to lean into that unblushing oddity. I, I read a great story. Um, there's a guy, last name is Moore. He's writing a book and he said he was having a conversation with a girl, teenage girl, about sexual purity and he's and and she was asking him about sex before marriage and he says no you know as a christian we believe that sex was intended by god to be between one man and one woman in the confines of marriage and this girl who's like in her 20s she looks at him across the table and she's like that's so weird she's like i can't believe that there's anybody in 2019 who believes that sex is to be between one man and one woman in the confines of marriage and only in the confines of marriage it seems like crazy he goes You think that's crazy? He goes, I believe that God, the creator of the universe, came to the earth in a body, died on a cross, rose from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and is coming back on a horse. You ain't seen crazy yet, right? (laughs) You think our stance on purity is crazy? You think our stance on love is crazy? Those aren't the craziest things we believe. No, I believe that the way forward for us, a scouting report here, is that we embrace the things about us that are peculiar. Because in embracing and and having an unblushing oddity, what is created is an unforced appeal. Then we're not going out and trying to bait and switch people. We're not trying to trick people into, oh, come to church because, you know, we've got a professional baseball player that's going to be talking on Sunday. And people come because they like the baseball player and they're like, wait a second, nobody told me he's going to talk about Jesus, right? We're not trying to trick people into this, right? 
We lean into the reality of what we believe. The scriptures are inspired. Jesus is at the core of who we are. The scriptures are our code of conduct. We believe in the miraculous. We believe in the mystical. We believe in the supernatural. And we believe that Jesus has called us to live a countercultural life that will look strange to the world, but won't repel them, but instead will draw their attention, that they'll look and go, man, there is something different about a room full of people singing to a God they can't even see. Man, there is something bonkers about a church that has all of its stuff in common, like it says in Acts 2, and they were just giving it away to everyone as they have need. Man, there's something so weird about the sacrificial love. There's something so weird about these people that follow Jesus, their peace and their kindness and their prophetic voice. It's not like anything we've ever seen. I want to get closer to that. I think the way forward for us is not by trying to round off all of the things that are odd about us, but leaning into that. And there's all kinds of ways we're talking about doing it. I'm so over my time, forgive me. But just to give you a couple of examples, I mean, practically already we're, we already are using a pipe organ on Sunday mornings, and that's a little strange for people, but it's part of our heritage, it's part of who we are. We're going to be talking in a couple of weeks about the fact that I, that I actually think we need to redo this room so it doesn't feel so much like a concert hall, so much like a place to come and see a rock show with the moving lights and the smoke machines or whatever, and instead feels like a sacred space where our attention is never drawn away from the Lord Jesus, right? We got all kinds of things working. One of the things, we told you we were making a big announcement today, one of the things we're doing uh, in, in four weeks' time, on September the 15th, we're gonna consolidate our two services, right? This is a, uh, a 1,700-seat auditorium, and in our first and third service, this service, we're typically running between six and 800, which is incredible that God is drawing all of you here. But in a room like this, look how spread out we are. Look how disconnected from one another we are. Look how our energy drops because the room's not necessarily full. And so for our neighbors and friends who come into this place and they see us spread out, they see that we show up to church 30 minutes late because we know we can walk in whenever and still find a seat, right? And so our priority of God drops and the way it's perceived by other people, it doesn't feel unblushingly odd. It just feels like a group of people who are sort of gathered because somebody told them sometime they should. We want our worship services to feel like something radical. So on the 15th, we're going to two services. One will be at uh, 919 and one will be at 1111. And you go, that's odd. And I'm like, yeah, right, of course. That's what I just said, right? Now, we chose those two service times because they, they will absolutely be memorable. You'll be able to remember what time we're meeting, 919 and 1111. It also gives us the time to stretch out in our services so I don't always feel like I'm four minutes and 51 seconds over, 54 seconds over, right? A little more time, a little more space to respond to the Spirit of God. It'll give us more time in between our services to actually get to know each other. So on September 15th, we're going to do that. Why? Unblushing oddity that produces an unforced appeal that when people walk in here, they go, gosh, this is not a Paul McCartney show. There's something otherworldly happening among Jesus' people. Confident expectation, right, that leads to radiant peace. Revolutionary kindness rooted in humble solidarity with our fellow man. Prophetic engagement rooted in demonstrable faith and unforced appeal rooted in unblushing oddity. In Numbers chapter 13, remember when Caleb jumps in and he goes, we should occupy it now. Let's go, I'll read it to you. He says in Numbers chapter 13, Caleb quieted the people in verse 30 and he says, let us go up at once and occupy it for we are well able to overcome it. Can I say to you this morning, church, let us go up and occupy it at once. Let us go up and occupy it at once for we are well able, not because of our strength, but because our God is that God. Our confidence in him our solidarity with our fellow man, 
right? Our demonstrable faith and our just owning the fact that we're grasshoppers and that's okay because we're with God. The church is a minority position. It's always been a minority position. It will always be a minority position. In Matthew 7, it says, narrow is the way and few there be who find it. When we try and make it a broad road, we make it something less than it actually is. We don't need to panic. We don't need to tear our clothes. We don't need to pull out our hair. What we need to do is keep our eyes on Jesus. Let us go up and occupy it. For he is certainly capable of taking us the next 10 years, the next 20 years together as a family. Would you pray with me as we close? God, I pray that you would take these ideas. I know I've gone fast. Take these ideas and root them in our lives that we could chew them a little bit, that we could stir them a little bit, that we could process them and think about what it looks like, how we activate this. I pray that you would move in us to be a people of radiant peace and revolutionary kindness and prophetic engagement and unblushing oddity, unforced appeal. That you would do great things in and through us because we are confident in who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.